Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Okay, so this week we've got some follow-up on the ARM Mac topic from last time. We've got some sort of newsy stuff. And then there's sort of some of these newsy things that be a bit bigger topics. Uh, and then we've got some backpatting for you later on. I do love a bit of backpatting. Right, so almost immediately after recording, so we're a bit we're a bit late publishing the last episode we're getting. We're busy. That, that's all <laughs> that's our excuse. Well, it's a bit just after recording it we were discussing ARM and laptop machines and how the big problem was mostly uh, I.O. and all the extra stuff that you get on a desktop CPU. Qualcomm uh, announced a load of details of their Centrique, so that's probably how they're pronouncing that, Centrique 2400 chip using the Falker core. And this is basically big ARM, if you want to think of it like that. It's an ARM chip for the data center. Uh, did you see any of the news on this or look into this at all? I had a look at the... Anantech had the deep dive. Um, although there was no benchmarks or such, but pretty good looking at what goes into making it possible to use ARM on the server. Yeah, so there's a link up in the show notes here, which is um, from Serve the Home. They've got a, a really nice overview as well. They've got basically copies of loads of Qualcomm slides, and it's, it's a really nicely presented um, deep dive into as well. Quite complimentary to the Anantech article. So, yeah, basically it's ARM... ARMv8 cores, a uh, whole bunch of them. And then they've added all the stuff I said was missing and the reason you couldn't use an iPhone chip in a in a laptop, really. So you get yep. 32 lanes of PCI Express. It's got your hardware encryption, secure boot, etc. Although a bit of an aside on that, um, I don't have the documentation for any details, but I bet there's a, the, all that cryptographic stuff will be in iPhone chips anyway to prevent them from tampering. But uh, support for DDR4, and lots of it as well, 1.5 terabytes a socket. Um, SATA buses, um, I don't think NVMe is confirmed yet. Support for Windows and Linux, so we're talking server flavors of Windows on ARM here. But then it's a bit lacking in the uh, juicy details, if you will. So like, all they've said about performing, there's a notable quote here, um, Qualcomm did not disclose L3 cache sizes, clock speeds, power consumption, and so forth. You know, there was no no performance numbers given. Yeah. Other than them claiming that they want performance per watt leadership uh, and to be up there on performance. Now, all that says to me is it's, it's kind of the point we're making at the... Because we were talking about the low power end and how actually Intel's not that much worse than ARM anyway. So what would you gain by going to ARM? And here at the high end, if they're talking about performance port leadership, they're just talking about being competitive in performance port. It says to me, these are still big wattage chips. Yeah, yeah. The big they've got a couple of different SKUs of these chips. The big one is 48 cores, and that's when you get the 1.5 terabytes of RAM. Um, they do a half size one as well, 24 cores, and that comes with 768 terabytes of RAM. By the time you're putting that much RAM on a board with the other things, the CPU is like less than half the power on the board. So, um, Still big yeah, high power systems. Yeah, it's a, it's a big high power system. So the performance per watt thing for just the CPU matters a bit less at this size. Also, I noticed none of their photos of it, they show heat sinks on this. You can't even guess power consumption from the cooling setup. Uh, although some of them are in one U uh, pizza box yeah. size stuff, but then yeah, that doesn't mean a lot these days, does it? Yeah, so like one of the things they tout is they've got, um, we've talked about it a few times, the Open Compute Project, that's where Facebook and Microsoft and a few other people sort of get together and design standardised servers for a sort of dense data centre uh, situation. 
um, you can buy these uh, centric, or they're making available the centric uh, motherboard design that fits in an open compute rack. Um, and from that, you could guess how big the heatsink is because it has to sit within a certain space and such like. But it's, it's, it's just going to be a standard heatsink that you would get on a Intel Xeon or similar. Yeah, so imply similar cooling requirements. But yeah, it's interesting to see competition in this space. Um, like, it's interesting to see the AMD's competition for Intel and other, other places. I feel there's some sick burn to make here about um, performance and the fact that one of the demos they're showing off was uh, Bing backend stuff. All two users needing all that performance or something. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a little bit of side news there where Apple, when you use Siri on an iPhone, it sometimes asks asks a search engine to do more searching or get more results. And previously it used Bing, but now it's using Google. So I mean, maybe that fits in with the sick burn. I don't know. I don't, have they moved yet? I don't know. I, I saw the news on it. We were just talking about it last week. I don't know whether it's... I guess they must have moved. Apple doesn't tend to announce these things in advance unless someone at Google leaked it. Yeah, so anyway, basically what we got here is everything we said was missing from an ARM chip. So this, I mean, this is ARM at the high power, high end, and then we see Intel at low power, low end. So that's, yeah, it's, it's quite um, refreshing and interesting, actually, to see chip competition or architecture competition. I mean, this is, this is something that's... Architecture competition has not been around for a long time. No, I mean, really enterprise systems, you do get um, power from... Of course. Who does power now? Is it IBM. Oracle or IBM? IBM. Is it IBM? Okay. So you do get that, but they're on super expensive systems, like not even the sort of thing most people are going to get to see. Yeah. Quite interesting machines, so we've talked about them in the mm. past. So speaking, let's get a bit more mainstream. Um, and you've put a link in here about the 8th Gen Coffee Lakes. Yeah, so last time, because we recorded it so long ago, we talked about a rumour about the Intel's next generation of desktop consumer CPUs, which are called Coffee Lake. On the day we actually released the podcast episode, Intel made these uh, CPUs official. So top end is 6 cores, 12 threads, so that's on an i7. 6 cores, 6 threads on an i5, and then an i3 is 4 cores, 4 threads. One of the things we talked about was the boost clock for the top end chip was 4.7 gigahertz and i speculated that that was maybe the turbo turbo boost 3.0 that intel use on their i9 cpus where two cores are picked out specially they're the best ones Mm -hmm. they can do that speed it turns out this 4.7 gigahertz is all core so if you have the right motherboard and the right cooling setup you can have six cores running at 4.7 gigahertz all the time that's pretty sweet yeah so it'll be interesting to see if anyone actually manages to get that to run without crazy power requirements. I think it probably will. I mean, these the, the default power requirements, the stock power requirements for these are 95 watts, and then it's quite easy to do together a system that'll take 150 watts of Xeon. So I think that I think that should certainly be doable. Already, I mean, this is a step up in cores, I mean, and like an extra 50% of cores on the i5 and the i7 compared to previous generations and the last 11 years. Um, there's already talk about them doing 8 core 16 threads um, late next year so Intel are moving quickly now I guess. yeah I wonder I wonder how much of this is um, reactionary to AMD and how much of this is planned anyway I mean it must have been planned to some extent but I wonder how much is yeah, repurposed high core current server chips yeah I think like to, to me it seems like they haven't had that let's say they've had a year to react and knowing Ryzen was going to come out with 8 cores in 16 threads it's even that a year seems quite a short time to decide you couldn't do extra um cores on a cpu die like you say it could be repurposed higher core count dies yeah i mean there's not there's not a big leap between your i7s and your zeons anyway and there are 
high core, low clock Xeons and high high clock, high, low core for Xeon, Xeons, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like they've been six core, 12 thread, high high frequency Xeons for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not like it's a totally new thing for Intel. I mean, marketing versus engineering is what's going on here, I think. And then, like, just recently, um, as we record, the uh, 7980XE uh, reviews are out. Have you, see, have you seen the benches for these? I mean, this thing's a monster. Yeah, so this is Intel's highest end i9 CPU, which is, is it 18 cores or 16? 18, 18 cores. 18 cores, yeah. yeah, and the step down is 16 cores. Yeah, the, it's expensive compared to the type of system you put it in. It isn't expensive, but the performance is amazing. We'll put a link to the Anantech article in the show notes, but they, they put it up against all the obvious things you would want to test it against, such as the AMD's. No, they've, not, they've not got against the HEDTZ ones, they're missing. So the current generation of HEDT Xeons aren't available yet, so I have seen somewhere bench them against the previous generation. In fact, it was uh, Linus Tech Tips on YouTube. They benched it against the previous generation Xeons. And that kind of trounces the Xeon almost everywhere, but that's because, you know, we use like a 20-plus core Xeon. It's clocked a lot lower than these CPUs. Yeah, and I guess you tend to use very heavily um, thread-optimized workloads for that. So, I mean, for people who are in the market for a workstation chip, but they need lots of cores, but they don't need EE, ECC memory. This is this is quite an impressive offer, offering. High frequencies and high cores counts. What's not to like? And this isn't follow up. What's this is doing in here? This is talking about highly accurate GPS chips. Yeah, so there's a bit of chat this week. Um, IEEE had an article about new low power GPS chips for um, smartphones and the like, where they're bringing down the accuracy from I think five meters to thirty centimeters. Um, and the rumour is these will be in smartphones starting in 2018. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what actual accuracy is because I've used I've used very expensive TGPS systems before and RTK GPS systems, which are accuracies claimed of about that. But then there's a lot of um, yeah centimeters, but not really centimeters accuracy going on. It depends what you mean by accuracy. That's a very um, it's either a very precise term in certain contexts, but context, but it's used in a very imprecise um, meaning in this context. It's yeah, yeah. I I wonder how um I wonder how necessary this is really. Yeah, yeah. In a smartphone, yeah. Especially where you've got a lot of um, sensor fusion type ways of localizing yourself. So, for example, you've got your IMU, you've got your your RF environment. You use that to localize yourself. That's how Google Maps and all and so on work these days. So, yeah, yeah uh, I don't know. Um, it'd be interesting. Mm. Interesting to see, but you know, better positioning. Who doesn't want better positioning? Staying on the sort of new phone topic, I notice you're putting a topic here about the iPhone 8 and the 10. I guess, how can we not talk about this? But we need to avoid saying what everyone else will say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not too interested in the devices themselves. Um, There's just a couple of sort of points that were in here. Um, The first thing is the new CPU is called the A11, and they're adding these names on them now Bionic, and I think they had Fusion for the A10 last year. Apparently, that's just a marketing thing where. Um, they found their market research found the CPU names were a little boring so they thought if they add a name to it people talk about it more and they, they, someone had results showing that yeah you do get more sort of hits on search engines and such like for that it's the first Apple CPU to have dedicated neural network hardware yeah. and I'd imagine it's going to be the most shipped dedicated neural network hardware in anything within like a few weeks So well, I, um, I, I, I wonder actually the scale that the stuff gets shipped to data centers you know, I mean, it's, I, I wonder, is that the same sort of scale as a... Do you think they're shipping tens of millions of them? Doesn't seem too likely, you know. If you said, like, 
few thousands or tens of thousands even I'd maybe say yeah that sounds reasonable certainly because we, we know from um, papers that are published how many GPUs some data centers have so you know maybe tens of thousands is reasonable this is the yeah, tens of millions within a period of a few weeks but yeah we've got we've got to give credit to you here for saying in the very first episode of the pin count Apple should do neural network hardware actually actually before this because it was me it was me guessing this before my WWDC predictions and I'm looking now 471 days ago <laughs> While WWDC prediction as it is this season, AI kit is a precursor to dedicated deep neural nets like an iPhone's leading to neat photo apps, and all of that has come true. At that, that's the WD, WWDC where they announced all the low-level neural net primitives to run on the GPU on iOS, um, yep. which they've expanded since then. We now have dedicated neural net silicon and iPhones having had one iteration of it running on the GPU and what are they using it for? They're using it for neat photo apps for all the portrait lighting stuff so yeah definitely called that one Yeah so I've not I've not actually looked at the developer documentation because I imagine it got updated last week when they did the, um, the special event to announce these phones but I imagine they're going to have a bit in there it says that now if you use those APIs you just talked about um, they'll now run on this neural network hardware as well as the GPU uh, I'll need to have a look for that So I have it saved somewhere, but what I was thinking of, thinking around this was, actually no, maybe it hasn't been published. I think I I went looking for it, but I'm not sure if I actually found it. Anyway, I wonder if it's just for inferencing or if they have any support for training, because uh, we've talked before about differential privacy and things like that, but they're about how you can train without, uh, without ever having access to the, the training data, right? You can train and vice versa cryptographically secure um, neural network stuff is very very interesting yeah and apple certainly seemed to be at the forefront of doing that they talked about it again in this um announcement anyway at some point we'll go diving into the apple doc documentation and trying to find it if it's just inference only um and another thing that we kind of talked about previously is kind of come to be true we previously we were talking about ar and vr and things like that we talked we we're hypothesizing that they calibrate the cameras at the factory for iphones and to allow them to do some, you know, extra computational photography goodness and probably for the AR stuff as well. And indeed, I think they confirmed that in the keynote that they calibrate the rear cameras on the, the 8 Plus and the 10. Yeah, I think it may be just that maybe all the cameras are calibrated. I wasn't 100% sure on that. Um, I certainly had a quick back, a quick look back at the keynote and it does look like it's all the cameras are calibrated. Um, but you speculated about whether they were doing this anyway, but just not making a point of saying it. Oh, I, I am almost one hundred percent certain they would be doing it anyway because if if you have if you know you control the entire stack and you have a combination of the ISP, the software, the lens, the camera, you know, if you're controlling the whole thing, you can make your lens physically much smaller if you know you can correct certain types of distortion in the processing afterwards. I mean, this is yep. partly why micro four thirds lenses are so small because. If you actually look at the raw, uncorrected data, there can be really quite significant distortion, but it's, it's um, friendly distortion, if you like, that's easily corrected perfectly in software. And that lets you get a physically smaller, um, but still optically great lens design. So it would amaze yeah. me if they weren't exploiting that in the camera designs. So the other thing in the iPhone 10 is that they've got, they've put what is effectively a Microsoft Xbox Connect in the front of the phone to scan your face. It uses like an array of 30,000 infrared dots on your face to take the measurements and then does its fancy neural network goodness to unlock your phone or not depending on who you are yeah i I quite like i I think that's actually quite a good thing because i mean if i've used um a machine with windows hello at all 
I've seen, I've yeah, I've seen, I've seen people using it. Um, the, the Microsoft Surface. Um, that's the only time I've seen it. Yeah. Is that using a sort of Kinect style interface or is yeah. it just a camera? No, Windows Hello uh, cameras are. It's a uh, infrared stereo pair in the same way as a Kinect or uh, okay, whatever they're calling the face unlock stuff. Is it face ID yeah. or something? Face ID, I think. It's, I, th- I think the way they explain this is a really bad mental model. So like, I use it on a Windows laptop for work. The best way to think about unlocking things with your face is, is not like that at all. Um, the best way to describe it is, imagine your computer is always unlocked, but only for you. Yeah, that is a much better way of describing that's, it. That's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. So imagine your phone is always unlocked when you're using it. And if anyone else is using it, it's locked. That That's what Face ID is doing. And that, like that, you say it like that, then you immediately you're like, oh, of course I want that. Why wouldn't I want my phone to be magically always unlocked for me? It's quite an impressive bit of kit. I have seen rumours that Apple are talking, or not talking, but looking into putting the same sensors on the back of the phone for sort of near field VR, eh, VR near field AR applications so you can better scan the environment and make measurements and that sort of stuff. I I wonder if you need to. Um, I mean, it's... No, yeah, if you can directly take measurements with some sort of active sensing, then you can make things more reliable and and more accurate. But I, I don't think you need to. I think unless they've got some sort of, some greater application of AR rather than the sort of toys and such like we see just now, like maybe there'd be something in that. I, it seems like a lot of effort and a lot of hardware. I think I think you can do fine with just a pair of cameras. Um, yeah. I would say that given my... That's that's kind of my work role. <laughs> that's kind of what yeah. I do for a living. But um, yeah, this this I could talk for this for days. Um, yeah, but I won't for now. Uh, I noticed you've pointed out here that they are publishing much more on machine learning Yeah, so their their machine learning journal, as they've taken to calling it, they've been publishing exactly once a month. They put an article up there. Today they've got a new article up about. Um, using neural nets to recognize handwritten Chinese characters. Yeah, and uh, Apple are so open, they're attributing this research to, oh, the faceless Siri team or handwriting recognition team. Yeah, so I think in in there there is a references section at the bottom where I imagine the authors of the reference papers are probably some of the people working for Apple as well. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if they start publishing even more publicly. So I I guess while we're talking about it, are you going to get an iPhone 10? If the right financial conditions... um, make themselves available massive sacks of cash they're so expensive (laughs) yeah it is a lot of money i mean in the uk by the time you buy the 256 gig model when you get apple care it's like it's like 1350 pounds or something it's a lot of money Uh, i'm actually kind of tempted just to keep my seven for another year well that's it you could buy i mean you could buy an eight and an ipad and still have change it's like you've got to you know by the time you've got the 10 then you want the wireless charging as well so yeah, I mean, I think the 10 is unlikely to be available before January in any decent quantities. It's unlikely you'll get one, get one before January. And then you've got to imagine the next one's going to be out next September and it'll be even better or it'll be the regular high-end iPhone with a price in between the two current price points. Yeah, and yeah. also to follow that we called it before, I mean, see our previous episode on displays where we talk about how it's surprising that Apple haven't gone OLED and, oh, look, they have. What is surprising is they don't have the 120 hertz display in there because they've certainly got the GPU grunt and OLED screens switch much faster and can do higher frequencies as we discussed before. So, yeah, I do wonder why not. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's just like it's just getting all the things together. Um, they have got the true tone displays and the iPhones now, both the iPhones, the eight and the ten, where they adjust the lighting conditions to show you sort of true colors. Um, so they've caught up on that with the iPad Pros. 
Um, maybe next year they'll have the 120 hertz. Yeah, so okay, so moving on to another sort of news item. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this or read much about it, but sort of relatively quietly, um, depending on what circles you move in, a couple of days ago, um, NVIDIA made public their repositories for what they're calling the NVDLA open source project, and this is uh, NVIDIA Deep Learning Accelerator. Um, so to quote from their website, I'll put links to the, the primer in the show notes. The NVIDIA Deep Learning Accelerator is a free and open architecture that promotes a standard way to design deep learning inference accelerators. So uh, have, have you come across this at all? I haven't. I saw you put it in the show notes and I had a rake around and look, looked at it. It definitely looks like a bit of a... In the same way as CUDA was, it's a bit of a marketing play to try and own the software story on the hardware. And this actually runs on like different hardware and some open hardware as well. I think it's... I think, yeah, I definitely think... it's. it's I said open-ish. I've not looked at the license in general. It's not a standard license I recognise for anywhere else. So I need to see what's required. And I think this architecture will be targeting models trained on NVIDIA GPUs. But having said that, they do support some relatively open formats. But anyway, so it's kind of open-ish hardware, and it's for inference only. They're not targeting training. There's different requirements for training that make it uh, a bit of a trickier proposition. I wonder if this is a bit of a hedge against competitors in the hardware space, because we're getting ever closer to some of the competitors. Neurala, now won by Intel. Um, There's been some interesting papers published on Knight's Landing about how you can really cheaply do state-of-the-art neural network research with only $1.2 million worth of hardware. <laughs> if you go Knight's Landing, um, and GraphCore and a few others producing um, dedicated chips for deep learning inference and indeed uh, training. And I, I, I kind of wonder if this is a bit of a hedge for them to try and capture as much of the ecosystem there when they can. But yeah, I, I can give you a bit of a summary of this I don't know if you've not looked at it. So what is this? Inference, that's the... Um, that's like the business side of neural networks. So you have your training where the, the network learns, and then inference is where you take a network that's learned to, I don't know, recognize cats, and then you feed it pictures and it tells you if it's a cat or not, right? That's the inference side, um, or the side that does um, text and comprehension, things like that. What they've got here is a way of open source stuff for, for creating hardware to do inference. And what I mean by that, I mean specifically um, IP cores that you can... Um, put on an FPGA. So they have a reference implementation that you can run on an AWS F- F1 instance that we've talked about before. You know, the EC2 instances with big FPGAs attached. Yep, we talked about video encoding on them yeah. in the last episode. And it's got, it's got some interesting tidbits here. It basically lets you build, it's designed to let you build your sort of custom inference into whatever hardware you're building. So they talk about um, setups where you've got shared system menu memory with a CPU, or maybe you've got some dedicated high bandwidth memory for for the inference engine that it accesses on its own, or they talk about maybe you've got some memory that's shared with the vision system. So this, this is, you know, it's really talking about getting neural nets everywhere, you know, embedded into things. They talk about headless and headed versions of it, where headless is where the CPU is kind of controlling thing, where headed is where there's no CPU there as a dedicated microcontroller. And they've basically got these hardware blocks that they're mapping to TensorFlow operations, and they've got some nice tools to do things. So you can take a pre-trained CAFE model, which is quite a open standard, and then you can implement that in you know that in hardware and so on. Um, what I've not found yet is good numbers on performance. I've, they have some in there, but it's all comparing deep learning performances. Um, it's very hard to find apples to apples comparisons, shall we say? Yeah. So, do you think this is um, 
NVIDIA are maybe realising that they can't control the whole inference story because lots of the competitors seem to be focusing on the inference side of things. And maybe if NVIDIA um, provide the sort of pattern for writing software, they can own the training side of it and then you can run your inference on whatever you want. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. But then I also kind of think, if you're NVIDIA, what would you do if you thought at some point this... At the moment, they own the market, right? In yeah. Training and inference, basically. That's clearly not going to last. So what if you're in video, what's your hedge, if that's the case? Like, what what is it you do? And even though they sell themselves as the AI company now and stuff, I mean, it isn't. this is dedicated neural net hardware rather than even their big V100s and things are sold, pretty much exclusively sold for neural network use, although they are yeah. usable for other things. I mean... yeah. They aren't as dedicated as this. I mean, there's potential for them to scale performance or get better performance per watt here. Mm. Although they talk about this being based on Xavier, which is their the next generation of their embedded chips. So yeah, no, I mean, I mean, yeah. If you're if you assume that the market's going to get blown wide open, then wouldn't you try and lead the way there? And that could be what they're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, they've already teased yeah, that is it Xavier? You just called yeah. it their, their next their next generation of neural network hardware where it's much much more towards the dedicated end of what you would do well, so specifically Xavier is the next generation of embedded things for autonomous vehicles what they're targeting yeah. yeah and related to this inference have you seen the uh, what Microsoft are calling Project Brainwave have you seen this no. yeah so this is their dedicated it's like a, a PCI card it looks like it's designed for use for um, inference and data centers no 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 we've talked about this before this is the FPGAs that Microsoft have been putting on the network interfaces of their data centers. Ah, uh, okay. So this is. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, I was. So I was really confused with the. I'll go. I'll. I'll tell you how I when I first saw this. I was really confused by the picture because it had an Intel logo on it. I thought, oh, maybe this is like an inference card where it uses one of the new um, Intel Stratix Ten FPGAs. But then I was which, is, the, I was, which it I, does I was, use. Yeah, and then I was like, but those are SPDIF network interfaces on the back of the car. Yep. Why, why, why have the two things? So this looks like it's partly like, um, we've talked a few times, Amazon's own network interfaces where they use FPGAs, but they appear to have some sort of trained model in here. What's that for? Right, so this is, we've talked about this before, this is um, Microsoft put FPGAs in all the data centers, but they instead of putting the FPGAs like on the motherboard adjacent to the CPU, they put them like at the edge, if you will, so... The network, you come off the network straight into the FPGA and then into the rest of the system, and this allows them to do some interesting computing. But then what they've done here is they've made a really interesting um, inference execution engine, effectively, using many of these things networked together. Now, some of them, they are um, they are quoting performance numbers. Now, they're saying 39.5 teraflops. Well, that's for what what size of hardware system, what power envelope <laughs> and stuff, so who knows there. But the really interesting thing is they're talking about running each request in under a millisecond without batching, which is crazily low latency. And that's important, yeah. right? I mean, if you're, search, if, you're, if you're doing web searches and there are millions of them happening per second, you want very low latency. I mean, that's, that's the really interesting thing here. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, it is really clever how they've taken the system they built before for something else and someone's realized, oh, this would be brilliant for doing um, neural network processing. It's really, really quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so it appears that these are similar to the Google Tensor um, TPUs, Tensor Processing. Yeah, TP, T, yeah TPUs. Like, 
this is meant to be like a hardware service that you connect to over a network interface. Mm. Well, it, yeah, it is the network interface. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah it's, an, yeah, it's an interesting thing. It entirely wasn't what I thought it was at first glance. Um, or it was what you thought it was. They were just doing something different with it. Yeah, and, they were just doing something different with it, yeah. Yeah, and they also had um, a load of performance data on the TPUs that Intel was presenting at uh, Hot Chips and the TPU2 and all the changes to it. And really, Sorry, you, mean Google, you mean Google? What did I say? Intel. Oh, yeah, I mean Google. I'm reading something else at the same time. Uh, but there's some really interesting uh, technical detail, which I won't even attempt to go into, but basically, yeah, really impressive. I mean, of course, it is Google. It uses a lot of compute. I, I find it crazy when you read the papers in this and they're talking about, yeah, it's this is a really cheap cheap option for uh, training neural networks. It's only $1.2 million of hardware. Yeah, but that's, yeah, it's a different scale. You know, it's you know, how many of these do you deploy versus how many GPUs do you deploy and try and run, try and get hold of. Okay, so thanks for listening to Pincount. Show notes are online at pincountpodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at at Douglas F. Shearer, and you can find Ian on Twitter at at the underscore accidental. You can follow the show at at pincountpodcast. We'd love to get feedback. Tweet us or use the hashtag askpincount or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For longer feedback, or if you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the API documentation and CAD drawings, email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. Is that it?